0: This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. Julia Herz has been a passionate advocate for American craft brewers for nearly two decades. In her role as craft beer program director for the Brewers Association, Hers helped build public appreciation for craft beer, all while helping to promote the interest of member breweries. She wrote a book on tasting beer, gave dozens of keynote addresses at conferences, and countless interviews to the media. Perhaps more than anyone else at the organization, Hers was the public face of the BA, and by extension of craft brewers. That was until June 2020, when budget cuts at the BA resulted in Hers and many other longtime employees being laid off. Julia is smart polished, and an effective voice for craft beer and breweries. And despite her departure, she has nothing but kind words for her former employer. In this interview, we discuss the early days of the BA, how it developed into the massive organization that it was in early 2020, and how the layoffs affected her and others. We also discuss the BA's diversity and inclusion initiatives, her future plans, and whether she has any seltzer in her fridge. Here is our discussion. So I think the first time that I met you might have been, it might have been 2004, or 2005. I remember going to a program that you had sponsored and were hosting about mead in the basement of the Marriott Hotel in downtown Denver during GABF. And, I'm you know, people may not recall, but you got your start, at least in this part of the industry in mead, right?
1: Yeah. Um, blast from the past, Andy. Yep. We, we do go way back, which is great. Um, and it's always rewarding to watch people evolve and know their history. And you are right. I was involved in uh, um, a leadership level of trying to get the beverage of mead into a broader space. Um, and I worked at Redstone Meadery. I was one of the co-producers of an event with Ray Daniels, believe it or not, mm-hmm. and David Myers of Redstone that got mead in the space and started a, a association at one point um, towards Mead and also hosted a festival.
0: What was it about Mead that attracted you?
1: I think, first of all, um, we're all sensory creatures. If we're, yes. you know, above uh, the intake of, of beverage and food beyond survival and and we should not take that for granted, um, I go for flavor and I go for what excites me. And honey to me as a fermentable was always like white paint, but yet, there was shades of, uh, of, of, of it with many different flavor profiles from orange blossom, wildflower, um, buckwheat, honey, the the list goes on and on. And you drop a little bit into that backdrop or that white paint. And it takes on such incredible, delicate nuance Mm. and mead is very difficult to make, I think, and to do well. And there's a Uh, emerging and thriving mead community that's still out there today and active. And when you ferment with honey, um, I think it brings just incredible flavors. And, um, you know, ethanol is also involved in the game and fermentation Mm -hmm. and experimentation and innovation is certainly there for that beverage.
0: And how did you transition from the work? you know, because your work in mead, like you said, was, you know, sort of to really start setting it up and really you know lay the groundwork for it. How did you transition out of mead and then into beer?
1: It's a really good question. As I sit here in my home office of Lyons, Colorado, I'm looking at my filing cabinet and literally on the filing cabinet is a um, bumper sticker that I made for the website that I had, honeywine.com. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I think precursor in writing the script for a lot of what I got to do with the Brewers Association right on behalf of, you know, taking beer to a deeper um, and more meaningful place and, you know, bring craft beer into the mix. And so it's, there's a lot of iterations of things. I'll try to think back and not be, um, uh, go off on too many tangents. You can mm-hmm. reel me back in. Sure. Uh, but, you know, in the late 90s, I actually worked for the Brewers Association. Okay. Um And even before that, I had volunteered at the Great American Beer Festival on a cross-country trip. And so if we want to set the stage, you know, I'm a young um, kid in my 20s. In the 90s, I graduate college with a broadcast journalism degree. I get the dream job that my parents hoped for and saved for and spent on (laughs) to uh, help get me educated and um, get a degree. And I worked at CNN Washington, D.C. Bureau. And I was on the path, but the catch is, is I, I just didn't click with it. It didn't feel right. Taught me a lot. I, I, in three years' time, was working at the CNN News Desk on weekends, working on the talk shows during the week, and really getting a lot of great big picture thinking. But it, it just didn't feel like it was for me. So I told my parents I was quitting my job and leaving, and I, I said, I don't know what I want, but this isn't it. And I went cross-country with my friend. We did a year on the road and in my Volkswagen Jetta, we called it the gypsy Jetta. Mm-hmm. And in that we camped, um, lived off of $15 a day, believe it or not, for almost a year on average, that was the dollar amount we spent. It was crazy. Yeah. And we would spend time with friends if we knew them. And if we didn't know anybody and we weren't backcountry camping, we'd go to the brew pubs and meet really cool people. So I always had beer on my mind and on that trip and same that same year, volunteering at the Great American Beer Festival, my mind said, I want to work at a brewery. Um, But I I just couldn't swing it. And so I was always into everything with sensory, right? When I was little, I had a a soap collection, I had a first aid kit collection, I was always smelling everything out of vials and jars and little boxes. And um, so I think mead on my radar Really set the stage and gave me learning ground. And then um, I was fortunate enough to work at the Brewers Association in the late 90s and do sales for the association for all the magazine ads, which was a crazy time because that was after the shakeout. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people that are maybe newer to the biz, uh, if you haven't heard about the the 90s, a lot of tire kickers (laughs) getting into beer right? I mean, Andy, you could tell stories of what you've studied and yeah. who you've talked to. It wasn't a solid, stable industry no. yet. So that was, you know, one iteration. And then I had a couple years at the BA doing that. I left, I went and worked at Redstone Meadery, uh, which was great training ground. Talk about, you know, uh, sharpening your pool cue, learn how to pedal carbonated 8% honey wine that's on draft <laughs> and try to get that tap handle yeah. um, from any restaurant on the Front Range in Colorado. And that was a crazy proposition. And then I had kids. I have two kids now. They're 14 and 17 years old. And at the time, during my Redstone years, I was busy birthing children.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then at my second child, I took a break from Redstone. And that's when kind of to get back to your original question, how to get from mead to, to beer four people in five months told me that Ray Daniels, who is the founder of the Cicerone program and beer famous Ray Daniels, mm-hmm. many other things too. He left the brewers association to start the Cicerone program. And by the fourth person in five months, you know, and I got a, I got a um, new baby on my hip that's less than six months and, and, you know, my oldest was a toddler running around. I said, I don't I don't need a job yet. My husband and I can live for another year. Uh, but I already knew the Brewers Association from having worked there in the late 90s. And when the fourth person said to me, you should at least go talk to the B.A., I walked in with my portfolio on how I had literally promoted an entire beverage category. None of their other candidates had done that. Right. I could say I had done that with Mead, right? Mead was getting in USA Today. Mm-hmm. Mead was getting talk um, on websites, sales were starting to climb. And so because the BA was willing to take a chance on me and not a full-time regular schedule, and I credit Bob Pease and Paul Gatza with that, they gave me a partial schedule for a full-time gig and I was off and running and I started back at the BA in 2007.
0: And what did they have you doing at that point?
1: And Um, and also, what
0: did the industry look like in
1: 2007? Yeah, right? Like... Um, more than 20 years ago, so 13, or forgive me, more than 10 years ago, uh, 13 and some odd years. I mean, in 2007, Andy, we had 1,450 breweries mm-hmm. in the United States. Now we have more than 8,200. Uh, it was a 6.8 uh, $6. or $9 billion segment for craft brewers. And today, or as of 2019, is $29 billion in mm-hmm. sales. 6.3% um, by volume. And as of 2019, craft brewers are more than 13% of volume for the entire beer category. So what it looked like was an emerging community of small businesses ready to pop. And boy, did I have an incredible front, you know, bird's eye view and in the trenches helping fuel that. And I'm very proud to have, you know, been there during that. I think incredible evolution and, and now tapering off and looking at the numbers in the last few years and you and most of your listeners already know this, but you know, we've got a slowing of growth Mm -hmm. going. Um, And even in the first half of 2020, we at least are, you know, BA is at least able to report 4% um, growth. So you've got, you've got a much more advanced, mature um, business community and a totally different era right now.
0: And in your early days there, was there, did you have a plan as to what you wanted to do in terms of where you wanted to take the BA and you know, when and how did the craft beer program develop?
1: Yeah, so um, for anyone listening, I'm the former craft beer program director at the Brewers Association and I, I had been up until June of this year um, in that role since 2007. And I I think the the role absolutely evolved some of it was um, me and us at the BA uh, growing it based on resources available to us because they did grow over the years. And some of it was the you know membership input, certainly, because the members set the stage for what they want their association to focus on. And in the early years, um, you have to think about what Ray was doing. He was not only craft beer marketing director, mm-hmm. and I, re- I removed the word marketing because I, I tend to get boxed into a corner over my career. People just think, oh, you're in charge of PR for the BA. No, I'm a spokesperson. We use media relations mm-hmm. um, and we make sure that you know media get response. Uh, we also use marketing. We also use advertising. So I removed the word marketing just to give myself, I think, a little better footing. But Ray was craft beer marketing director in 2007 as well as Brewers Publications publisher.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the role was not, Really, I think um, until I came in, really focused on as a true full time gig. You also have to think about in 2006, the Brewers Association added the craft beer definition. Um, that definition's had a lot of talk, and I will say, having <laughs> spoken about it day in and day out, and you're welcome to ask me about it, you know, that definition had such an impact. It really created a authoritative data set. And pre-2006, you know, amazing people like Paul Gatza um, and others, and and Ray included, were speaking on behalf of craft brewers, but it wasn't a group yet. It was brew pubs, microbreweries. Craft wasn't even a part of it until the definition came along in 2006. So the job was very different i more streamlined as a um, you know, storyteller and, uh, you know, advocate, which I still um, uh, feel like the role was very centric on advocacy and education, um, even in 2020, but we didn't have craftbeer.com yet. That mm-hmm. website um, of which I was the first, I was the publisher and first writer for it and the architect behind the scenes for it um, with many of it, you know, support um, and uh, influence from many others in the BA That wasn't around until 2009, and that was a a true part of what the craft beer program at the Brewers Association was doing, was taking the beverage of beer and and helping share the stories behind what it really means to be a brewer of that beverage and what it really means to be a craft brewer and what craft beer is sensory-wise. And there's so many great evergreen resources on craftbeer.com that I and others contributed to. The beer styles are much more accessible. They're not geeky judge you know, competition-style guidelines—they're for retailers and beer lovers, right? Um, you have a way to actually chase down what flavor is. It's a triangle. It's a fusion, and we have the flavor triangle on there. Um, just a lot of evergreen resources to share. If you want to go deeper into beer, here's how. And by the way, mm-hmm. here's the independent U.S. producers um, that are that are making it. So that hadn't—that was not around yet. Nor was the independent craft beer seal. Right. And that came around in 2017 and obviously was very centric to what I was doing and um, the whole craft beer program.
0: What did the BA look like at that point when you, when you came in? Because I think you know, people are familiar, at least in the industry now, with the Brewers Association. And over the years, there have been you know, changes and additions, uh, you know, mergers with another organization. You know, when you were entering it in 2007 and you'd had some previous experience, you know, what did it feel like?
1: Right. And it's a really good, if you do want to get into the history of an an amazing association, of which I think is a generational association, um, it's a relevant question. Uh, We talked earlier in the conversation about the shakeout in the 90s, right? And the Brewers Association went through layoffs after that. And I came in in the late 90s right after that. So there was already a tough feel, Right. Mm-hmm. And there were difficult times um, in that era. I walked around a couple of times on Pearl Street, which is the associations in downtown Boulder, beautiful town, you know, sweating, wondering if the B.A. could pa- cash my paycheck. Right. Like, yeah. was I going to get paid? And that was the late 90s. So I think for any tenured employees at the B.A., there's always this awareness of, wow, that was painful. It was a painful phase. Um, let's watch out for that. And, um, you know, then you have this era of growth. um, And then what happened is the Brewers Association finally got a seat at the table. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, The B.A.'s uh, um, purpose today is to promote and protect American craft brewers, their beers and the community of brewing enthusiasts. And those words are taken very seriously by the board of directors and the staff to execute, execute that purpose and deliver on it. But the BA didn't always have the manpower um, or the muscle on the government affairs side and the promote side. And in 2005, you you bring up the merger. Um, the BA or Brewers Associations had multiple iterations, mm-hmm. you know, way back to 1942. Small Brewers Committee meets at the Chicago Palmer House, which I've stayed at, and you know gets together to to meet for you know to secure tin for for bottle caps for mm-hmm. small brewers. And many, many decades over the years, there was just different iterations of this emerging representative body for the small brewers. But the big brewers, the more established ones, had established representation, frankly, since the late 1800s. Over the years, and you can read up on it, certainly, um, the mergers that came together in 2005 really put the promote and the protect side together. So the early BA, pre-2005, they were really good at competitions. GABF had been around since the 80s. Crack Brewers Conference was giving that industry collective powwow and bringing people together for that cross-pollination of information. So it really could have be a business community that had innovation and sharing of ideas and rising tide floats all boats. And the BA did all of, you know, much more than that, and published books and whatnot. But on the government affairs side, it was really more the Brewers Association of uh, of America side. Um, Mm -hmm. And you had these different iterations, um, Association of Brewers um, combined. And prior to that, you had something called Institute of Brewing Studies. Mm -hmm. You had Charlie Papazian creating American Home Brewers Association in 1978, which was also part of the mix in 2005 and still is absolutely today. And you got it all wrapped up after that merger in 2005 to be a, Promote and protect organization, and I truly feel, having watched all this, that that's when the BA really started to fly and get members representation that they deserved, um, based on better market access, a voice for better ingredients, and on the government affairs side, especially.
0: The tent that you're mentioning there, in terms of all those disparate interests, is it's pretty big. Uh, it covers you know consumers and home brewers and you know people in the trade from you know, a hundred, you know, you know, hundred barrel a year tap room to you know breweries the size of Yingling and Boston Beer is the tent. It, how does that all work? Is the tent too big? There is it. Is the BA focused on too many things, or is that just all the natural outgrowth of of how this organization has has grown and come to be over
1: the years? Yeah, I mean, I think any organization should and does look at that. Um, but the difference between a small brewer, less than 6 million barrels of beer a year, and then the, the next step up, you know, I guess take Heineken in the mix now, um, is is very broad. And you've got the majority of breweries in the United States certainly making less than 1,000 barrels of beer a mm-hmm. year. Um, 70% plus of today's breweries are still members of the association, and that is essential. And wh- the, the power that you gain from a collective um powwow and um, caucusing with each other of like businesses right the tap room talking to regional craft brewers at the craft brewers conference or getting you know uh going in walking in the footsteps of, of a sam adams or Yinling or a sierra that trickle down effect is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the BA focuses on an incredible amount of things. I think one of the biggest struggles for the association over time was always, and I was on this side too, is we how do we get the members to understand what we work on that has value to them? Mm-hmm. And you can't slam dunk that because different members have different needs based on the age of their company, based on the you know distribution model, based on the amounts that their barrelage is, based on their business approach and i think at the end of the day you frankly have thousands of people over the era that we're talking about coming in and out of the doors and the you know walking the walls and halls of the BA with staff and members that were on that were or are on the committees and the board and i think that group whoever is in you know in that seat at the time rides the saddle of the community and gets the pulse and steers the ship in the way that you know is going to serve the 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 best of the most of its membership Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so this year uh when covid started to hit when did you really become aware of the pandemic and start to have concerns that it might impact both the beer industry and the ba
1: yeah and i don't know andy what was your question that i'm curious like was it you know before march for you
0: it, for me, it was because my wife was traveling abroad, actually, in February for, for work. And so at that point, we were, we were paying pretty close attention to what was happening in China and then Italy and then through you know, Eastern Europe. Um, and so when she was back, you know, essentially, we, we started quarantining almost right away. And that was the last week in February, probably, for us. So we've been, we've been yeah. at this a while now.
1: Um, yeah. And so most people would answer March, including me for the, it's getting real, right. There were emerging things in the news in January. I've even talked to one brewer who feels like they had somebody, uh, that was on their staff that had COVID in December, Mm -hmm. which is very rare, but on my, my radar, you know, it got really real in March when I was in New York, um, with an incredible group of women craft brewers. We were doing a, yeah, presentation um, evening and really special night to showcase women in beer, right? Uh, So much to focus on on diversity in so many um, populations, and this happened to be women in beer. Mm -hmm. And it was the first week in March, and I had just come back from uh, keynoting at the Texas Crack Brewers Conference. Um, So I was in the travel phase at that time. And with every passing day, that I was on that New York trip, it became very real mm-hmm. that this was, this was, this was going to be like our generation has not seen. And I'm, I'm just pleased that I got, I was able to get back to New York I'm from New York. Right. Okay. And then I was still, I guess in denial enough, I went to see Oprah Winfrey on her crazy <laughs> tour. Wow. Andy, yeah. I go to see Oprah Winfrey, 15,000 people on like March seven. Oh, wow. Yeah. and, I don't know. Looking back, that was probably not my best move. <laughs> yeah, but well, what if are you going to do?
0: Yeah, if we all knew what we, we know now. Right. Yeah. And so around the BA, was there, I mean, I, at some point, the economics have to, have to come into it. When did that start to dawn on you a little bit that this was going to impact the organization as well? Because, you know, the public conversation had been, you know, will you know, CBC happen, will, and to some extent, will GABF happen, but then, you know, we start seeing things like, um, you know, music festivals in Texas, South by Southwest getting canceled, and then it's starting to really dawn that, you know, this is gonna, this is gonna hurt.
1: Right, and I know you, I mean, I listen to your, to Beard regularly, and in your Bob P's interview, which your listeners can refer to and and pull up, Mm -hmm. Um, Bob talked about how because we were going to be hosting Craft Brewers Conference in San Antonio, they were still up until early March and kind of I think it was March 11th that we formally pulled the plug day or two difference maybe, but it was right around then. um, They were still the city of San Antonio and um, all those that were in charge were saying you can still host it. And that became apparent that that important week, and that's the week I believe uh, uh, COVID was declared a a pandemic by Mm -hmm. the World Trade Organization, um, that it was not going to be wise or prudent for us to do that, despite many wanting us to still host it. So it got real, real there. And I mean, certainly earlier in February, you've got so much in advance our events team's amazing
2: mm-hmm. bruce
1: association events team led by Nancy Johnson and her crew the advance planning for a 13,000 person event is you cannot document the details in an 8 hour documentary if you try
0: i couldn't imagine. Um, i can't imagine doing it it just
1: no yeah and it's months in advance years in advance contracts and uh, hotel room blocks and so they were hearing from exhibitors, they were also hearing from people shipping, you know, World Beer Cup beers, which also got canceled and was a big hit for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly earlier than March. Um, but it wasn't, you know, big events were still going on, as as you point out.
0: And then, you know, obviously, the BA starts to do its rounds of layoffs, you know, how to you know, and not to just get too personal here, but you know, you have been a spokesperson for this industry for a long time. I think it's pretty fair to say that a lot of folks, even those who understood that the BA was going to be looking at some pretty bad numbers, were pretty shocked to see you know the names of of the layoffs, including yourself. So how did that develop, and when did you know you know how did you you know come to find out that this was gonna it was going to land on you? Because as I said, you know, for those of us who have who've worked with you and and seen you as if not the pretty much close to the public face of the BA it was a pretty big surprise
1: yeah and I think it's truthful to say that myself and my 23 other co-workers that were laid off so there were 24 mm. positions um also let's add to the mix ambassadors right. that were our contract the contracts were ended let's add to the mix our grant recipients mm-hmm. from the brewers association based on research side of things um and uh other places that the BA was funding, let's put executive director grant program for guilds in the mix. Right. The the impact, um, when people talk to me about my professional situation that has become very personal, cause I'm sitting here laid off in unemployment now, wow. Yeah. Um, it's not just me, mm-hmm. it's not unique. Um, I'm one of 40 million plus on the doles now. And in the realm of the Brewers Association, it was, I think, in, in-house, Two rounds of layoffs, extremely stressful. I felt that survival guilt after the first round. My entire mm-hmm. team and the positions I was in charge of were cut, minus me. And yeah. it was a you know difficult time for every brewery in this country. They were asked to, frankly, breweries, by the way, were asked to, in a way, and, and Jeffrey Stuffings of um, Jester King kind of said this, and I it struck me, Breweries were asked to sacrifice for their country. Mm -hmm. They were asked to close their businesses, not knowing what the repercussions would be to keep people safe. Um, And so everyone in the era of the layoffs that the BA has now been in, in which were April and June, and the story frankly still continues um, on what um, the journey is for any company and what their books now look like. uh, Very uncomfortable. Uh, COVID surprised everybody. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm gutted. I am. I'm doing well, but very um, unplanned, uninvited change for my career. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm one that got up every day for 13 and a half years, at least in the role as craft beer program director to give to my family, to give to my community and to give and advance craft brewers. And now I have to reconcile what I do next.
0: How much do you miss the work that you were doing? Because you seem you're just so passionate about it and have been for so long, it ha- you know, especially where it, it happens so quickly. Just, you know, what is how do you just respond to that?
1: Well, you don't cut it off. You don't turn it off. Right. Um, I'm still reading and listening, and I can't help myself. Right. I'm I'm still engaged and um, I miss it a lot. Um, it was meaningful work. It was impactful work. Uh, it, we, we helped and I helped small businesses in, I think many exponential ways. And, um, mm-hmm. I miss it. I miss my coworkers and I miss the environment that I was fortunate enough to be in while I was in it.
0: Are there thoughts or any ideas of, of, of going back to the BA or is just the financial situation such that, you know, it's time to, it's time to, to look forward. And, and that was a good run there. <laughs>
1: I think everything's good about not too much rearview mirror. yep. Um, but we also have to know that anyone can contribute to a membership organization uh, if they so choose and there's more than one way to contribute. Um, I'm looking forward to being um, a judge at the Great American Beer Festival, mm-hmm. which should be fascinating to uh, um, to have that unfold over the period of three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, should I choose so and, you know, uh, in what I'm shopping to do? Am I going to be an academic and could you continue education? Will I find another cause to advocate for or a brand? Um, will I consult and or will I get one full time gig? If, if you know, there's many options in the future where if I am still tied um, and as I am still tied to um, any number of breweries, uh, you know, what can I do maybe on the committee level or mm-hmm. the board level? That is a possibility depending on how and where I position myself.
0: As I was noting earlier, you had a pretty public face for, for the BA and one role was to talk about you know, issues of diversity and inclusion, as you had mentioned earlier in the program. Just to start off, and it's a question I ask a lot of people recently, do you think the craft beer industry is inclusive?
1: Yeah, I love that question because we should keep asking that question about every sect of our community, society, and culture. Um, and I think the craft beer community is as inclusive as it is in different arenas, and there's no one answer for that. Mm-hmm. The, um, the The data shows that it has a lot of room to grow and improvement. Um, I've been speaking about that and writing about that since 2016. Um, and I think if you talk to one brewer, they're going to give you one answer and another brewer's mm-hmm. going to give you another. And my hope is with this COVID era and everyone being forced kind of into business and and personal survival mode that, you know, diversity and inclusion and equity uh, in the workplace and in business doesn't get pushed down right. and doesn't get pushed away, just like environmental efforts and the importance there. um, so there's there's not one answer of yes or no. I will say on the record though that there's a lot of room for improvement.
0: Mm-hmm. And along those lines, you know, do you think that the BA has done enough, and it's time to promote inclusion in the industry?
1: I think the Brewers Association was just getting started. Um, the any any association is going to you know keep with the pace of the membership themselves, um, and in 2016. Things were starting to emerge where it was clear we needed to focus on this arena um, from both staff level and, and my side, certainly on the record, and then also on you know, our board level. And that positions the BA to roll up their sleeves and carve out space to create um, the, the steps that were taken in 2017. Um, and in you know, 2016, I wrote a, a blog post and still on BrewersAssociation.org. Mm-hmm. It was November 2016, also appeared in New Brewer Magazine, and the title was Embracing Diversity in the Beer Biz, just to get the conversation going. Let's publicly talk about this, because I felt when I was talking about it publicly that I was stale on the topic and that we needed more to point to, to show that improvements and progress were being made. And I talked about what we did know, I talked about what we didn't know, and what we wanted to do. And in 2017, we followed through on a lot of that and got a growing body of work at least started. Um, For those that don't know the history, in 2017, um, the Brewers Association created the first um, iteration ever of its diversity committee, led by Scott Metzger. Um, And uh, he was a great chair and and membership that rolled up their sleeves, some Mm -hmm. of them still on the committee today. You know, worked um, uh, on a, almost a year to on how to establish what they wanted to focus on and what we wanted to improve. And then we finally got going on some you know tangible uh, growth um, or tangible programs and initiatives. And, I mean, the hiring of the Diversity Ambassador and Dr. J was a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was, that was certainly 2017 and a great start to what we had uh, needed to get going. Um, and you have Crop Brewer's Conference and educational resources really starting to grow finally from that work. Um, we, there is uh, benchmarking um, resources for members and, and, and breweries. Uh, Dr. J. Rodham authored them. And they're, you know, about diversifying your fan base, your, your hands, which is your staff um, and your brand. And how do you diversify all three? And then how do you benchmark it? Um, so, I think that's a great uh, testament to what was getting going and you're, you're definitely going to see more in the future. Um, it, it appears to me that the brewer's association is doing more than listening. Um, I think change is slow and that's hard, um, but that doesn't mean change won't happen and that more resources won't be pooled into this in- extremely important arena um, for breweries and, and all businesses
0: to go in a very different uh, sort of direction now. One of your and you've been talking about it throughout this interview, one of your you know, passion areas is about tasting and, and sort of training your palate and and, um, and just just learning about flavors and smells and aromas and, and how to process all of that. What you know if there's somebody who's new to beer, and I'm sure you've had this conversation many, many times, what is your 30 second or elevator pitch as to like how to train your palate? To become you know a a better beer drinker, a craft beer drinker.
1: I love that, and anyone in beer that's in geekdom like me and you, Andy, will have our own answer. Um, but it's such a fun one to get to answer because mm-hmm. it means you're mentoring and, and bringing somebody along on a, on a deeper journey and back to what we intake as food and fuel and beverage for you know thirst and sustenance. If we're able to go beyond that, it is such a enriching thing to do. Is focus on what you are perceiving focus on how to describe that to yourself and then with lexicon how you describe it to others and then focus how it brings you enjoyment and reward and so you know you want to get more into the sensory side of beer have, go into your local tap room and, and brew pub and, and get a flight and sample several different beers at several um you know different occasions sometimes with food sometimes with not sometimes with people that can tell you about it sometimes quietly and then start to play, open your fridge, get out the condiments, get out the pickle jar, get mm-hmm. out the mayonnaise, get out, you know, the salami and and start pairing. Um, and that's an area to me that is extremely important, um, just not on a personal journey of reward um, to the kind of gastronomic side of things, but also to the business of beer. And, you know, wine, which it doesn't even have as much sales as beer. Mm-hmm. Beer's a $114 billion um, import and domestically made beer in 2019 for the US um, business. And wine is 70 billion give or take. And so what has wine gotten over these years though, that beer hasn't has, um, I think been um, attributed to a lot of sales and comfort with the beverage based on how people are talking about it, how they're allowed to dive deeper, how they do pair it. And so I just think people should, not take themselves too seriously, but allow themselves to geek out. And, you know, I talk about the mind to palate connection, your, your physical palate, your tongue and your soft palate. It doesn't lie. It just perceives and tastes. Mm-hmm. And Then you, as soon as you try to put mental thought to that, you're like the, the high schooler at the dance in the corner gossiping about <laughs> people. And sometimes you're right. And sometimes you're totally, mm-hmm. you know, lying to yourself and, and, and making up a story. And so how you perceive it and describe it Um, as a beer professional and educator can help with, you know, reward and enjoyment and and make somebody's day a little better and help with sales too. And so that's, that's a good place to start is just diving deeper and bringing pairing into the mix as well.
0: What, what are your thoughts on and sort of the evolution of the American craft beer drinkers palette over, you know, the last five, 10 years? Uh, You know, we have, you know, from the early days of seeing, you know, some porters and some amber ales and things along those lines to, you know, through the sort of extreme beer movement and, and crazy hopping rates to the hazies of today along with pastries out. You know, what is your take on just sort of that evolution? Where do you think we are at now in terms of, you
1: know, the craft beer palate? Um, way more advanced, uh, more discerning and more experimental and open-minded. So beer has become more fun. And it's not just become more fun because producers, small producers finally said, enough of just mass produced lager. We're going to show the U.S. beer market something different. But it's because the beer lovers have come of age with lots of options and started to look at beer as a place that isn't just um, one style, but it's that, you know, craft beer from small producers that can tell them about it, that can maybe even talk about the ingredients, that maybe can point to the owner, that maybe can show you where that was brewed. And so I think the craft beer lover um, has really become more discerning and uh, open-minded. And with that, you got to remember everything's so generalized when you talk data. And you know, there's three levels at least the way I and others look um, and research the craft beer drinker. You know, Nielsen will do it one way, Um, different breweries will do it one way, but the the People Magazine way to describe it is there's beer beginners, beer enthusiasts, and beer geeks,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the stats for those are going to vary and waver, but pretend it's a third, 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 um, and those are gonna those individuals are going to have different purchasing patterns, different preferences, and different ways that they enjoy um, and work beer into their diet, and so anyone going after a certain market for um, beer lover needs to consider um, at least. Who they're going after? Are they going after all three? Well, that's three different things. Mm-hmm. Are you going after, you know, the emerging beer enthusiast? Well, great. Then, well, how did your marketing account for that? It's it's important, I think, always to remember that one craft beer lover is not the next craft beer lover.
0: Now, an important question: Have you ever had any uh, hard seltzer in your fridge?
1: <laughs> not in my fridge, but I've certainly had it in my glass. Mm-hmm. How about you?
0: Uh, no, not in my, uh, no, not in my fridge, but occasionally in my glass. I've had, i had the opportunity a couple months ago when we were still doing things like this to go over to our local beer shop, craft beer cellar, and, uh, to, you know, be involved in a blind tasting of about 45 seltzers. So that was a, that was a long night. That was a long night, but, uh, I've, I've tasted quite a bit, but what is your take on, on, on sort of the flavor of seltzer? Is there, or is that why people you think are drinking it?
1: Yeah, I've been speaking about seltzer for quite a while now, and it is uh, not going away. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, Brewers Association released Nielsen data that showed that hard seltzers were boarding on three billion in sales annually. Yeah, um, that's a pretty significant number if you think about the entire craft sales um, for independent craft was that twenty nine billion in in twenty nineteen. Um, but what are hard seltzers? I think that story's still being written. Um, it also, I think dovetails from the LaCroix, which I call the LaCroix mm-hmm. era. And my kids are in it. I mean, my kids don't drink water. It's very strange to me. I try to show them data, but it doesn't back me up like I want it to. <laughs> they think they're going to be just fine. I'm an, I'm trying to tell them that the enamel on their teeth will eventually, you know, mm. go away. But yet over, um, appreciation of, uh, of, uh, carbonated soft seltzer, I think then led to, well, God, this, this is on fire. It's, it's, it's so great. Let's see what we can do to bump it up and advance it and have it be, you know, not just a sessionable um, alcohol beverage, but it can be a mixer. Um, So it takes beer into the spirit side, which is always there and been emerging, but, but not really gained, I think enough traction um, as it should have. Uh, So it's a fascinating arena to watch and no, I don't have it in my fridge, but I, I certainly am. Um, trying to be open-minded and take in where the sensory attributes are so rewarding for so many, and maybe what am I missing um, if I'm closed-minded to that?
0: I think that's a great take. And do you think that have there been seltzers that you've had that, you're, that you think have you know solid flavor ones that you want to return to? Because I think that's been sort of the problem for me is that I can sort of I can understand their appeal, but I just don't have a great deal of attraction to them.
1: Sure, and this is where I'm a terrible, militant, diligent um, professional within the the beer biz where, you know, I really, there's so many great beers that I need to try and want to be aware of that over the years, I have just forced myself to not go off on too many tangents. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And if I'm going to regularly taste things, it's going to be craft beer from a U.S. producer. Right. So I dabble. Um that's why I'm probably not the best one to answer. <laughs> you know, I dabble in cider. Um, I still dabble in mead. I'm I'm a classic cross drinker and mm-hmm. Andy, you probably heard the the phrase that I coined of, you know, raise your right hand if you're if you drink beer, raise your left hand if you drink wine, cross them if you drink spirits, and now you're out of the closet. I've added thousands of people yeah. and you are in good company because the majority of fermented beverages based on scan data are purchased by people that um, uh, buy in all three categories. Right. And and so where is cider in that category when I say wine? Maybe under that for you. Where is seltzer when I say beer? Maybe under that for you. Um, but there's different ways to look at seltzer. There's different ways the data is being tracked. Um, and it's frankly its own category in many forms.
0: As Sort of the last question here. What do you think the eventual impacts of COVID are going to be on the craft brewing industry? In the beginning, the BA was releasing some data from some member polls and talking about, you know, maybe as many as a third of craft brewers would not be able to make it a, a matter of a few months. We have we obviously pushed past that, and the virus has changed and mutated in different parts of the country and, and done its own thing and impacted things in different ways. You know, with a few months of, you know, of experience now under our belts, where do you think this goes for craft brewers? Do you think we will see a lot not survive this, or do you think that they're going to be resilient enough and just, and be able to continue through a new path?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question for right now. And I think anyone that is evaluating this space needs to remember that the story's being written. And I feel like we're, we're maybe, um, at the, Phase two, part of it, maybe not, and so it's a tough one to predict. But the first of all, the association will never be the same that fuels it, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The um, the regrowth that will need to happen from it, and the disruption uh, is so significant. Um, and I, I've been doing a few media interviews this week, and you know, kind of a little bit of a month since I I've been laid off at the Brewers Association. Mm-hmm. And so now I have um, a little bit more of a, a perspective and able to to look at things. But a line that came to mind when I was answering a question earlier this week was, is the disruptors have been disrupted. And my true hope is, is that the uh, recovery from that disruption will um, still allow craft brewers to hold on to that uh, generally that integrity and that that small business mindset and that help each other, um, rising tide floats all boats. Uh, some of that was a little bit starting to fray. You were starting to hear a bloodbath at retail in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, distributors, uh, while craft brewers have been increasing in numbers, distributors have been getting more and more consolidated. Um, and I think Rotation Nation, which was great if you're a beer geek, hard if you're a retailer, um, is maybe going to have a big pause because distributors and retailers are um, at least giving signs that they are just going to streamline and, and keep with mm-hmm. uh, more established brands um, and uh, you know, from less producers, which I think is a, a true um, upsetting thing to hear. Uh, and hopefully there's more flexibility in the future when we get a little bit past survival mode. Um, I think brewers are going to need to look more at diversification and you're putting all your eggs in one basket, who to thunk that, you know, a draft beer tap room model um would be as hard as it is. And when the winter comes and the colder months comes right. and COVID's still here and the heat is on and the doors are closed, how's that gonna feel right. when you're a, you know, you or me or and your and our listeners are are not just uh, in the biz of beer, but we're customers um i think there's a spectrum a spectrum of caution i've been calling it for covid cautious patrons summer let's just go for it see how it feels when i walk in the front doors others are you know like my parents they're not even going out of the house right. they're scared to they're they're older so i think back to your original question of how's covid going to affect craft brewers on the other side of this um Hopefully we're not going to see too many breweries not opening and based on the mid-year numbers, um, we had, you know, or the BA recorded 112 closings. That was only 4% higher than the same time Mm -hmm. last year. There were still 300 openings, believe it or not. Um, But that was down 20% from first six months in 2019. So you are seeing that impact. Um, And I I think you're going to see breweries that need to diversify that need to think like um, they are their customer. They cannot just be in the books and the business side and the fundraising side and the marketing and sales side. I want every brewery owner to consider walking through their establishment, going to retail and trying to put the eyes of their customer on every time with the COVID mindset and see what kind of chilling effect is mm-hmm. caused by that. And then you know figure out how to, how to get around that because if they're not paying attention there's going to be new things that we need to adjust to from COVID that uh, that sneak up, so it's hard to predict. Right,
0: Julia, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It's it's great to to reconnect with you, and I can speak for a lot in the beer industry that I you know we're looking forward to seeing what your next steps are and and to following it. You've had a great impact over your career, and we expect that to continue. You obviously have still remain a very passionate and knowledgeable source and it's a it's a valuable valuable for the for the greater craft beer community so i wish you well moving forward
1: i thank you so much i'm i'm usually the one that likes to ask all the questions (laughs) thanks for (laughs) the venue and the time andy keep up the great work with an amazing podcast that's really getting behind the scenes um and i'm very impressed with what you and john hall are doing so thank you thank you very much
0: thanks for listening to the beer edge podcast My partner, John Hall, and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, BeerEdge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support.